Good morning. Thanks, Ryan. I need binoculars to see the notes here. There we go. You guys doing okay? Yeah, some good answers. Pretty lively bunch. Um, I'm filling in today, and I actually had two messages, and fortunately I decided on one, so we should get to go to lunch. Um, but it's funny how the one message snuck up on me, because usually how we do um, teaching here um, at the chapel is expositorily, like we get it in the book of the Bible and we go kind of verse by verse or a few verses at a time. So when you're the filling guy, you're not going through a book, so you just kind of have to choose. And so I had something on my heart, I knew I was going to teach about it, and then I had this moment where my biblical dyslexia got me, or my scripture failure. You see, I, I've memorized many verses, but I have a really hard time with remembering where they are. I get the numbers wrong. I usually know kind of where Old Testament, New Testament. Sometimes I can narrow it to a book even, but a lot of times I get the numbers wrong. An example of this happened not all that long ago, about a year ago. I was pitching this ministry idea. I thought it was a really good ministry idea. I had um, just logistics to a T, and then I, you have to link ministry ideas to a verse because that way they're scriptural, and that way you have something to put on the back of the T-shirt. And so I had my verse, and I was saying, John 18, 17, we need to live sent because that's the verse where Jesus says, as you sent me into the world. I sent them into the world, so we need to live sin, and here's how this model will work. And I kept saying it, John 18, 17, John 18, 17, and just, I thought it was going really well, and then the senior pastor stopped me, got his Bible hand, and he goes, I just really don't see how the verse applies. So he shut me down, and I, I left, and I was thinking, he might not be saved. Like, what's his problem? And so later, I, I, I got my Bible out, and I turned to John 18, 17, so I could try and explain to him, this is what I mean, live sin, Jesus is talking about being sent. And then I read John 18, 17, and it said this, then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? He said, no, I am not. I meant John 17, 18. And so that's how this message came to me because I, I had written an encouraging letter to someone and at the end I put Philippians 1, 3, and 4. And then later on in the day I was thinking, I just deny Christ when I sent him this letter. I got to check this out make sure I got the verse right. And so I checked and I realized, hey, I got the verse right and I read the next few verses and I read the first 11 verses of that chapter, and I realized that it was a love letter. You don't usually look at that, but this letter, out of all the letters in the New Testament, it is just this joyful love letter. And that got me thinking to my first love. I remember in a fourth grade classroom, I looked across the room, and I found the girl I thought was perfect for me. Like, we would enter into a relationship and talk once a month via colored note. You know, she was going to be that for me. And I remember serendipity stepped in, and we got called to the chalkboard at the same time to do a multiplication problem, a race. And I looked over as we were doing our race, and she was way behind. I'm not even good at math, so I don't know what her problem was. And I remember, like, feeling this urge because I cared so deeply for her, and I, I was slow on carrying my nine, and, you know, I, I piddled around, and she beat me. But I remember hearing from that day forth and every day since in different relationships, that wasn't love. Like, that wasn't love. That was like kid stuff. But I was thinking, you know, I kind of sacrificed for her. I had affinity for her. I had a care for her. I even think of, like, drinking Coca-Cola. I love Coke. And people say, well, that's not love. And I think, well, I invest in it. I think about it when I don't have it. I enjoy it. Like, and I think I started thinking of that. And, and with the Christian message and how we live in Christ, we're always prone to restrict love. We forbid it. We cage it in. What is love for? Love is for your spouse and for Jesus, and that's about it. Maybe your kids, it, it drips over into them a little bit. Like, we really close it off, and I think that's half the problem. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. He gave this in a lecture, and, and he was kind of applying it to something else, but it plays here, too. It says this, 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum when he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far, far too easily pleased. And Lewis wrote a book called Four Loves as well, and he talks about the different kinds of love, the God love, and then some other loves that we have. Some are good, some aren't good. And I think he was starting to hit on it, is that we can love a lot of different things in a lot of different ways, and that's okay. But we need to look at our life and the things that are non-sinful that we love. We need to be striving to love them deeper and better. And the key is the non-sinful part. We can love a lot of things, and I'm not saying we love our sins more, but I'm saying the non-sinful things. We need to love deeper and better. A lot of times we, we try and talk ourselves out of this as if Christ might be jealous if we start loving well. We start loving someone else well, and, and, and God's up there in heaven like, uh-oh. And yes, he's a jealous God, but I think when we start loving something well, it shows that we are connecting more with Christ than we were otherwise. I've had several guys come to my office, at least five, I tried to count them last night after the message, and I came up with five, but it might be more than that. I might be forgetting someone. Guys who are in their 20s come to my office for counseling, and they're just brokenhearted. Like, some of them have cried. And they knock on the door, and they come in. I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to be tough. What did, what did he do is what I'm thinking. And he sits down, and I say, what's going on? And he says this word, the word you'd never want to hear. It's a girl. So I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we go. What happened? So I'm like, okay, tell me about it. And, well, I met this girl, and we've been hanging out a lot, and, I say, well, what, you're a Christian, obviously. She, yeah, she loves Christ. Like, she just loves Christ. And we go to church together. We hang out together. We read verses. We, we're doing ministry together. And I just love her laugh. And we watch movies. And going through this whole thing, I'm like, okay, where's the problem? What'd you do? Accidentally hit her? Like, what's going on? When are we going to get to? And then he says his problem. And his problem is this. I think I might be falling in love with her. And so I'm still trying to say, where's the problem? And then the guy, all of these guys have said this. I got to break up with her. So you're walking better in love than you ever have before. You're trying to serve someone. You're serving God alongside someone else, and that's cause for alarm. And that's the mindset, I think, with many of us, not just in relationships like dating situations, but I'm talking broader. We start loving something, and we try and cut it off, or we try and minimize it, and we try and turn our passions into hobbies and our desires, our deep-rooted desires, into likes. Yeah, I like it. I tinker around with that. It's not a big deal. We try and turn our relationships, these things that are supposed to be deep and integral parts of our life, we try and turn into these tepid meet and greets. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And cage everyone else off. I'll love my spouse deeply, and that's all I got. I don't have room for others. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't see that embodied in the way Jesus lived. I don't see that as God who is termed God is love. I don't, I don't see him that way. We, we just sang that his love won't run out. We repeated it several times. His love will never run out. We act like it is. We act like we're on the reserve tank. I remember at, at 17, um, one of my friends wanted to have this big party for the 4th of July. He had, he had one every year for about three or four years running, but the first one was at the age of 17, and we toiled for days. We put tents up, and seven or eight of us toiled for days, worked harder on this than anything we had ever worked on in our lives. We built a sand volleyball court in the guy, at the guy's house, not in his house, but at the guy's house. Um, had all these games, had all these plans, invited all these people. And I'll be honest with you, I was a lustful lad at 17. 
I, I could say I wasn't, and then I'd be a dishonest man and still a lustful person at 17. So I'm just going to be honest. I was lustful at 17. And so in our brainstorming sessions with these other lustful guys, we said, a bunch of girls are coming to this. Wouldn't it be great if they wore swimsuits? We need to get some baby pools out here. And so we did. We got baby pools, and part of it was because of the heat, but part of it was like, then the girls will wear swimsuits. Better for us. And so we got these baby pools. We filled them up. The problem was it was 104 degrees that day. And it didn't take long for those baby pools. The water was about 104 degrees. It was like jumping into this hot dog water. It was about six inches deep. It smelled terrible. There was straw, grass, debris, sand in it. It smelled bad. It wasn't refreshing at all. I remember sitting in that thing thinking, this is disgusting. This isn't refreshing. This isn't how it's meant to be. And I rivaled that to a month later. I had uh, soccer tryouts, two-a-days, and it was about 104 degrees, much like that 4th of July day. And our coach showed up to the field. He said, hey, guys, we can't practice. I'll lose my job if we practice. It's too hot. Instead, we're going to run to the park. And that's like a two-mile run. We're like, we'd rather practice than run to the park. He said, no, but here's the deal. I booked the swimming pool. So when we get there, we're just going to swim, have fun, team bonding, get to know each other, play games. It'll be great. So we ran. I remember being cotton-mouthed and cramping and hot and just the sun beating down on us and looking up on the hill and seeing the pool. It was like a mirage. And we all ran through the gate, and not one person ran to the kid pool and got in ankle deep. No one touched the water to make sure it was a great temperature. Everyone ran and gainered, cannonball, dove, whatever their, their choice was, into the deepest part of the pool and tried to swim deep where it would cover you and the sun couldn't scorch you. I think that's more the picture of how Christian love should be. Not sitting around in a baby pool wondering, why is it lukewarm? but diving in deep, deep, deeper, as deep as we can get, with as many folks as we, should, we can get. Now, sure, there's going to be levels. Like, your spousal love should maybe be greater than some of the other loves you have, but that doesn't mean you can't dive deep in those other layers as well. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't dive deeper with our spousal love. And there's only one way to dive in deep. And that's what brings us to Philippians 1.1. Because here Paul is writing to these people whom he loves deeply, and we get to see ten attributes of deep love. Ten attributes of deep love. And, and I think Paul loved a lot of people. I think Paul loved, for instance, the Pharisees. He didn't like them. He had a lot of things against them, but I think he loved them in a way where he wanted them to be saved. So he had like one attribute of love for them. He might not have had a whole gamut of love, but he had one attribute of love. But we see here is him gushing in ten different ways. We see him loving here more in a lot of ways and deeper in a lot of ways than we see him loving some of the other churches he wrote to. He loves these people. And so what I want to look at today is how he loves them, those 10 attributes of Paul's deep love for Philippi. And then I want to come around and look at why he loves them with the hope that we might be able to take our love to see instead of the mud pie slum. So that's our goal today. And so let's begin with Philippians 1.1. It says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, through all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the, el- the overseers and the deacons, or elders and deacons. So that's just a way of saying, hey, this is written to the church at Philippi. This is a gathering of people at Philippi who call themselves the church, call themselves Christians, are in the faith. Then he says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the first attribute of deep love is a wish for grace and peace for the object of the love. This was a standard greeting, so he used it before, but I think he means it. I think he means it every time he uses it, but he means this. He wishes grace on people. The church of Philippi, he wishes that they would come to know Christ, and for those who have come to know Christ, he wishes that they would be sanctified, set apart, and grow in Christ as he himself is being grown in Christ. He wishes for grace on people, and attached to grace in Paul's doctrine is always peace. 
Because grace is what reconciles us to Christ. You can't have peace and be at war. And so when we're reconciled, we get this sense of peace that can only come from that reconciliation. And he's wishing that on people. Sometimes I live my life, and you can be honest or dishonest, you probably live this way too, where you don't wish grace on other people. They're living in a way that you don't think they should be living. They're doing things you don't think they should be doing, and you don't wish, man, I wish God would meet them. I wish they would find Jesus. I wish they would turn their life around. What do we wish? I wish they'd get what's coming to them. Man, I wish someone would show them. I mean, that's what I think a lot of times with people. I'm not wishing grace and peace on them. I'm wishing something else entirely. Uh, I look at it as a, a good illustration would be a good breakup versus a bad breakup. A good breakup between two people, you might talk to them and say, what happened? You guys have been dating forever. Well, we're just on different pages, but I wish nothing but the best for him. I wish nothing but the best for her. She's going to find the right person, and, and I just hope her life goes great. Well, that, you're wishing grace and peace versus a bad breakup where you want to key their car or you egg their house or call them in the middle of the night and hang up. There's nothing graceful and peaceful about that. And so they don't have that attribute of love. That's an attribute of love that Paul has for Philippi, and he starts out with that. I wish grace and peace on you. And then the letter continues. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Thankfulness is the second attribute of a deep love. If you love something deeply, you're thankful for it. Spousal, uh, spousal arguments typically resonate in this one. This is where they come from. I know in my own household, my wife does the laundry. She wants to do laundry because I shrink our clothes. Our clothes are all wrinkled. They're, you know, they don't fit anymore. My shirts become her shirts. So she wants to do the laundry. She likes to do the laundry. She forbids me from doing the laundry. Yet she gets upset about doing the laundry when six or seven times in a row she'll do the laundry without me thanking her. Thankfulness. If you're here with your spouse, you can look right now and say, I'm thankful for you. It doesn't just have to be spousal, but I don't want anyone else doing it because the person next to you might say, well... You have nice hair. Like, it might not be reciprocated, and that'd be embarrassing. But if you're here with your spouse, you can say it. I'm thankful for you because that's important, and that's a deep attribute of love you need to have. I'm truly thankful. And that's what Paul's saying here. I am truly thankful for you. And then he also says in that verse, in all my remembrance of you. Deep love has remembrance. I remember this in seventh grade, too. We realized that the, the golden key to getting girls to like us, or so we thought, was just a pickup line. We, we saw these pickup lines, whether it be on the internet or on TV or whatever, and we thought, oh, that's the key to a girl's heart. And the worse the pickup line, the more we'd try and use it. I wouldn't use them because I was shy, but I'd be the guy who's like giggling in the background. But my friends would go up, and I remember this one. You probably do too if you lived through the 90s. Um, you tired, girl? And the girl would be like, why? Because you've been running through my mind all day. If you're here with your spouse, you can say that to them. No, don't really. They might hit you. But Paul's saying, I think of you. Church in Philippi, you've been running through my mind. This is evidence of a deep love. My wife goes to work at one desk in the morning. I go to work at a different desk in different locations. It's like fivefold moments. We're looking up at the same bright sky, wondering somewhere out there. Like we're thinking of each other. I remember her during the day. She remembers me. I wonder how her day's going. And I feel this way about my family, my mom, my dad, my stepdad, my sisters, because I love them deeply. And some of my friendships I think about more than other of my friendships. And the degree to which I think about people and remember them is the degree to which I love them. Paul is saying, I think of you. He's also saying, I love you. Those things go together. So who are you thinking about? What things are you thinking about? And to what level? It's a sign of deep love. 
Verse 4 says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. An indication of deep love is that you pray or meditate on. Paul says, I pray for you. And I think for all of us, you love what you pray for, and you pray for what you love. It's a great idol test. I know about a month ago, maybe two months ago, I was laying in bed. I was praying every night. I usually do. I, I lay there and I pray, and then my mind kind of wanders. And I realized that more often and more often, I was praying and meditating, thinking on one thing over and over again. And it was something that was mine. My project, my thing. And I realized I am worshiping at an altar. I do have a deep love, and the deep love is for me. So I had to pray for some changes, and I had to confess some things, and I had to try and get back to where I'm loving deeply other folks, not just myself. But you love what you pray for, what you meditate on. Here Paul's saying, I pray for you. Not only do I just remember you, but then I pray for you. And then he says this, with joy. He prayed prayers of joy. Another attribute of deep love is joy, and this is where a lot of us miss it. I look at a couple like Romeo and Juliet, and I don't know if they were in the faith because they were fictional and all, but if I was counseling them, premarital counseling on Romeo and Juliet, I'd say, you guys need to get away from each other. There's no joy in your relationship. You're like emo kids together, and you're suicidal, and you're vengeful, and it's not going well for you. You need to split up, but I think a lot of times in the church, we're the same way. We don't have this joy. I, I think of it as running a marathon. Um, have you ever seen on the news, they send, mari- they, they send news crews out to the big marathons, and when the, the, the horn goes, everyone starts running, what, what do people act like? The Kenyans shoot out in front, you know, they're running hard, they're gone, and then everyone else, what do they do? Woo, marathon, and they're like fist pumping, giving the camera thumbs up, because they, they've been training, they're excited that this is going. What they don't ever show on the news is mile 18 where the guy who was giving the camera the thumbs up is now vomiting on the side of the road. Someone else is laying there, like, tired. People are cramping and limping. Someone's quit. They've already gone home. They don't show that. Hey, we're going to interview the person who quit at mile 18. The news never does that. But I think Jesus told the disciples, they'll know you by the way you love one another because you're going to love one another with joy. I think a lot of times people from the outside look at those in the faith, and what they see is mile 18 Christians. We're limping along. We're missing the finish line where we raise our hands up and Jesus was victorious. We're missing the starting point where he saved us and we just limp along in our trials and anger and bitterness and that's what we spew out. That's what we're cramped up with. If I see a mile 18 person, I'm never running a marathon. It's when I see them finished with their arms raised and it's when I see them start out and they're joyous that I want to run a marathon. Joy. Paul had joy because he had deep love for others. Verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, and then 6, whether you get the reference wrong or not, this is a famous verse. 1-6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The deep attribute of love is confidence. Now Paul is confident in Christ Jesus, the verse says, But much the way that God looks at us and Christ's righteousness is transferred to us, Paul is transferring his confidence that is in Christ to these people. Why? Because they are in Christ. They are of Christ. And so he says, I'm confident fully in Christ, and since you are in Christ and Christ is in you, I'm confident that you are going to be brought along on this continuum of sanctification. I'm confident that you are going to be better off. I'm confident that you are going to grow in your faith because Christ is in you, and I'm confident in Christ. 
But you'll see this. A deep attribute of love is confidence in the object of your love. If you look at it this way, uh, a lot of dads, if you have a, a deadbeat kind of son, what does dad say about the deadbeat son? I've been a deadbeat son, so I can talk about this. But what does dad say? He's a screw-up. He's a screw-up. He's a screw-up. He's always going to be a screw-up. I love him, but my son's a screw-up. What does mom say about that same kid? He's a screw-up. He's a screw-up. He's a screw-up. But don't be hard on him, honey. If he would just meet the right girl, if he would just find Jesus, if he would just get a job, he just needs a break. That's why moms are typically the last one holding out for their prodigals. Everyone else quit on someone, but mom's still holding out. Why? Because she has a deep layer of love and confidence. She's confident. Sometimes we can't explain why, but she's confident. She holds on. And that's the way deep love is. It's confident. It's not dopey or misguided. It's just confident. And for Christian love, it's confident because Christ. Because he's good and what he's done. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. This is a great line. Because I have you in my heart. Like, you know when the postman delivered a letter from Paul, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, are we in trouble? And then they read this, and they're like, Paul loves us. He really loves us. I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. A deep attribute of love is that love shares. Here, Paul is saying, we share something. He shared a common story with them. He shared a home with them for a while. They shared finances like they were his missionary care team. They looked out for him. If you walked out in the lobby of their church on their flat screen TV, the picture of their scrolling missionaries, Paul popped up, probably smiling, thumbs up. Paul's one of our missionaries. So they shared all that. But I think even more than that, he's talking about we share the same grace. We share the same God. We share the same Savior. We share the cross together. You hear people break up. Our roommates move out, or friendships end over this all the time. We had nothing in common. I want the best for them. I like them. We, you know, we got along, but we had nothing in common. Paul's saying here that we have something in common. And for Christ followers, genuine Christ followers, sometimes we get this half right. Like our church, we look at each other and we say, we have this in common. So someone gets baptized at our church and our baptismal, we're like, yes, church was great today. We, we hear a good message. The message was great today. We sing good praise songs. Oh, we are really worshiping today. We're all hands in on it. And then we hear about a church down the street doing that. And what do we say? Well, they don't preach the word. Did you hear about their pastor? They're in debt. It's like, oh, all of a sudden, all the sharing went out the window. But we're supposed to be sharing that with them. We share the same Christ. We share the same general doctrine. We share the same basic theology. We should be pumped up. And Paul here is pumped up at this church growing. Even it's growing without him. He's somewhere else, but he's pumped up that they're growing because they share the same Christ. We need to be better sharers oftentimes. At least I do. We keep going. This is, this is great. You can write this in a Valentine's Day card. Like This is a beautiful line. It says this, For God is my witness, verse 8, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, they're probably reading this out loud, and someone came late to the meeting where they're reading this letter, and they heard that line. They're like, oh, that sounds kind of sappy. That sounds kind of like Nicholas Sparks. Who wrote that? And then the person's like, oh, this is from Paul, the apostle. Ever heard of him? 
you're like, whoa, because that is quite a line. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. A deep attribute of love is that you long. You long for the object of your love. That's why the psalmist says, as the deer panteth for the water. I remember once we were driving, a friend and I, and we were driving in Jackson, and there was this drought during the summer. It had gone a month, maybe a month and a half, without a drop of rain. Everything was getting dry. It was barren. No rain. And we were driving, and there was this dog in a flatbed truck. It was the size of a horse, not the truck, the dog. It was this big old dog, mangy-looking mutt. And it's sitting there in the back of the truck, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it begins to rain. Not a lot of rain, just some sprinkles. And we see it on the windshield. We're like, what is this? <laughs> it's rain. We hadn't seen it in so long. And all of a sudden, the dog starts swaying back and forth like Ray Charles, singing, you got the right one, baby. He's going back and forth. His tongue's out. What's he doing? He's just longing for the water to fall upon his tongue. And we laughed at that dog. We're like, that dog looks crazy. And that dog could have just waited till he got home and his owner fills the dish. But he longed so desperately for water, he was willing to sway back and forth for it with the tongue out. And how that dog's head wagged and tongue wagged and tail wagged, that should be our hearts wag for those whom we love. It should be a deep longing. And Paul's telling these people, hey, I long for you. I want to be with you. I want to be near you. It's a great picture. A picture that many of us lack because we don't have this depth of love. And we need the Holy Spirit to get us there if we want to experience the fullness of joy. Verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. A deep aspect of love is that you desire growth for the object of your love. What Paul's saying here is, I want you to grow up in the faith. I want you to have growth, understanding, discernment, and knowledge. And what he's saying there is that you might get growth, understanding, discernment, and knowledge, and in that growth, understanding, discernment, and knowledge, what is that going to do to Paul's role? It's going to diminish it. If they grow in growth, understanding, discernment, and knowledge, they're not going to need Paul to write them letters. They're not necessarily going to need Paul to come and tell them how to do the faith. They're not going to need Paul to be their spiritual consultant because they're going to have it kind of autonomously on their own. That doesn't mean they're not sharers of the faith, but they don't need, it lessens Paul's role. But Paul's not worried about his role. He's worried about what is best for them, which is Christ. He wants them to grow up knowing full well, but if they get all grown up, they're not going to need him as much. And this is the same mothers we talked about, and it's not just mothers. I'm not picking on mothers, but the same mothers who had confidence in their prodigals sometimes have a problem with this aspect. They don't have the deep attribute of love that surrenders to growth. That's why some moms have whittle boys, whittle boys, whittle boys, and their whittle boy turns 40. They don't want to walk him down the aisle. Why? Because someone else will do his laundry. Someone else will cook his meals. And some of us are like that, too. We, we restrict, we restrict, because if we want growth, that might mean change, and that's a scary proposition, and so we just deaden that aspect of love in our hearts. Paul's saying, I want you to grow. I don't care about my role. I care about Christ's role in your life. I want you to grow in discernment and knowledge. Verse 10, so that you may approve all things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. The tenth attribute is just an overwhelming desire for what is best. You want what is best for the object of your love. Paul, throughout this letter, wants what's best for them. Even if it diminishes his role somewhat, he wants what's best for them. It's soaked in this. He cares greatly because he loves deeply. So I was looking at this list of 10, 
And I was reading this passage, and I thought, how many people do I love with all ten of these attributes? I thought I was going to have this whole list. I was going to put it on the PowerPoint, like, check this out. You know, list them all. My wife, my family, President Obama, whatever. I was going to have this big list. Look at all these people that I love and care deeply for. And then I started looking at it, and I came up with one. And it was my wife. And that was a sometimes. Sometimes I'm not even hitting 10 out of 10 with my own wife who I stood up and have a covenantal relationship with. Sometimes I'm like a 7 with her. A 6. Like, man, I don't even love the person I am, like, supposed to love as deeply as anyone in this world, how Paul loves these like pseudo strangers. What is going on? And so if you answer the same way, why do some of us lack this deep love? Why do some of us lack the joy that comes with deep love? What's the answer to that? For some of us, it's trials. Man, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what they've been through. Life is hard. This happened. That happened. That. Well, I've read the Bible, and it says, consider it all joy, brethren when you encounter various trials. And then I look at Paul's life, and that dude was trial-laden as can be. He's experienced more in one day than I've experienced in 29 years, so I know it's not just that. That's not a good excuse. And so I was looking at my own life, and I I came up with this. This is why. A complete joy slash love is only attained through the gospel. And then I started thinking about, like, mission trip love. You know, when you go on a mission trip, I remember the first time I went on a mission trip, I met the people who I was going with. We were going overseas, and I was like, hey, here are my rules. I got a hula hoop of space. I don't want you coming into it. I don't really want to get to know you that well. Let's just get our week done, serve well, and come home. And then by day two, what happens on a mission trip? You're like skipping through the streets singing Brady Bunch. It's a sunshine day. You're all happy. And I'm like, what happened? Why did that relationship get fast-forwarded so much to where I love these strangers so deeply in such a short amount of time? It's because it's soaked in the gospel. I think many times we settle for the Dixie cup serving of love when the provision of God's Niagara is pouring there right in front of us. You know, we're hot and we put the Dixie cup on our face when we just got Niagara Falls and we could just get drenched in God's love, in the provision of his love. Because at the the center of this talk is that God is love. The Bible tells us God is love. A synonym for God could be love. God is love. And love originated before any of us were on the map in the Trinity. Before human beings existed, love existed in the Trinity. And then it was poured forth into us in creation. And we as image bearers got love. Because God loved. That's why the verse says, we love because he first loved us. Now that can be an element in giving us Christ, but it could be a really logical element too in that the whole reason why we are able to love and why we strive and yearn for love is because God is love. And as image bearers, he put that in us. And then at the fall, what happened? Love got tainted. It got distorted. It got manipulated. And the world started dictating what love was, and it didn't become anything like it was supposed to be. But love, like us, was redeemed in Christ by his death on the cross. It didn't just redeem us. It redeemed our ability to replicate the kind of love that was designed in the garden that poured forth from God. Love is a thing truly and deeply only had in the gospel. We can only have the deepest sort of love in the gospel. I want to prove that by Paul's story. He loves the church in Philippi so much. And you say, well, well, how do you know? Or how did he attain that love? Well, he attained it because it was soaked in the gospel. And we have proof of that in Acts 16. 
Acts 16.12 says, and there to Philippi. So this is when Paul landed in Philippi. He stepped into Philippi for what we know is the first time, and he's just hanging out in Philippi. And it says this, he and his team of missionaries. It says in 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Okay, so Paul and his team of missionaries go and they want to pray and they walk into a women's Bible study. There's a women's Bible study sitting there and Paul goes and hangs out with them. And there we get introduced to a woman named Lydia. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. So who is Lydia? To Paul, I put Lydia as a potential friend. Like this is someone who probably had some commonality with Paul. She was wealthy. Now Paul wasn't wealthy, but he could have been. He was on track to be wealthy at one point in his life. She was highly educated. Paul was highly educated. If you read his stuff, you know he was educated. She was Christian. She wasn't Christian in her heart yet, but in her mind she said, yeah, I think this stuff's true. I hope God changes my heart sometime. They could have talked about religion. They could have talked about politics. They probably could have talked about basic economics with some understanding. Like, the other type of people who you'd say, hey, get in the room, they're probably going to hit it off. They'll be friends. And Paul goes into their Bible study, presses pause on the Beth Moore tape, and says, hold on, I got something to say to you ladies. I mean, that had to be the weirdest deal, these ladies praying, and Paul's like, you, you care if I join? And they're all looking at each other like, uh, we're all women. Do you care if I join? Like, I want to try that at some point. But Paul does that, goes into their little small group, and then it says in verse 14, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So a potential friend, the method was proclamation, and the result was a life transformed by the gospel. And then Lydia had a big house, so after this meeting was over, she said, do you and the missionaries want to come to my house? You want to stay a few days? And Paul's like, I've been accosted by rivers. I've been sleep-deprived. I've been beaten by rods. I'll call the master suite. Let's, let's just hang out for a couple days. Let's relax a few days here. And so they stay a few days. And it says, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged them to stay. And then verse 16, it happened as we were going to the place of prayer. So then the next day, or a few days later, they decide to go back. And we get introduced to the second person Paul meets in his trip. And it's a slave girl having a spirit of divination. So she had like a demon inside her. Met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. So the slave girl, she is Greek. So kind of different ethnicity than Paul. She's young. She's uneducated. She's kind of dirty. She, she has a different vernacular than Paul. She has a spirit of evil inside her. Paul has the Holy Spirit. Like they are polar opposites. And then we get even worse in verse 18. She's following Paul around a couple days, just mimicking him and saying stuff behind his back. And, and Paul was greatly annoyed. So she has all this going and she is annoying. Like the worst person ever. Like get away from me. You're annoying. You're this, you're that. And Paul turns to her, and he says, I command in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her to the demon. And it came out at that very moment. So here we have a girl who I would deem, if Lydia was a potential friend to Paul, this is a potential stranger. This is the person you're filling your drink up with Rhodes, at Rhodes, and you look over and you're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to them. There's nothing. I can't talk about the Cardinals. I can't talk about this. I can't talk. Okay, just walk by quietly down. Like, keep your head down, eyes on the floor. You don't need to talk to her. This girl, but Paul turns and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, so the method was a miracle invoked in the name of Christ. And we have the ability for that same miracle, and it's called prayer. We can speak miracles into the world through prayer. And it doesn't mean we walk around and we're going to exercise demons, but it means we can pray for those in our lives, and God's hand can miraculously touch them through our prayer. 
we have access to the name of Jesus Christ. And the result was the slave girl's life was transformed by the gospel. She was freed from her bondage. She was no longer a slave. We presume that she became saved. Okay, so we got a friend. A method was a programmatic small group, a proclamation, a result was transformed by the gospel. Then we have a servant girl who was a stranger. The method was prayer or a miracle, result transformed by the gospel. And then we get our third person that Paul kind of intimately meets. And they, they arrest Paul. They throw him in jail because this whole thing with the slave girl, her owners are mad because they're not making money. Throw him in jail. They start beating him. And when they had struck him with many blows, they threw him into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This wasn't like Robin Hood stocks. These are like stocks that like contort your body. So he tortured them. He took them to the inner keep and he tortured them. They didn't say torture them, but he tortured them because he takes his job very serious, this guy. This guy is Paul's enemy. He wants to keep him locked up. He wants to hit Paul. He hates Paul. His one goal on earth is to keep Paul contained in a prison. This is Paul's enemy. He really got Paul down because it says at 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. That probably made the guy hate Paul even more. Like, stop your singing. I'm torturing you. Quit it. And then suddenly there came a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This guy's Paul's enemy. They have nothing in common. Paul was like a rule breaker, and this guy was so fastened to the rules. This guy was a militaristic man. He, he was a former, you know, military guy. He had led convoys, and, and, and now he's here, and he's suicidal, and, and Paul shouldn't have even talked to this guy. He should have been gone. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm yourself, we're in here. And he called for the lights, and the soldier rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So we got a soldier, we got the enemy and a boss, and, and the method that was used was example. And it's easy to say there, no, the method used was an earthquake. We can't call earthquakes out. But I would say in this room, someone has an earthquake going on right now. The walls of someone's heart are shaking with job loss, financial difficulty, Marital trouble, a kid who's walked, walked away, worries, laden. We all have earth. Some of us would rather have a real physical earthquake and damage to our property than the stuff that's going on in our hearts. That's going on all the time. It's what we do with those earthquakes, how we respond to our own earthquakes and those of others. Here, there's two different earthquakes going on. It's one earthquake, but the Paul, it's an occasion to sing and to proclaim Christ. For this guy, it's an occasion of suicide. So how does Paul step into this guy's earthquake and be an example? And that's what he does. He steps in, and he's an example. And the result is a life transformed by the gospel. Verse 30. After the soldier brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So those are three occasions. Three occasions. The three people we get Paul intimately meeting, these are the three people who take the gospel back to their households and begin a church. And these are whom Paul is writing the letter to. It's not his former, like, college team. It's not his wife. It's not his close family members. He has deep love for this collection of kind of misfit strangers, people who weren't even that much like him. Different ethnicities, different learning backgrounds, different genders, different stations in life, and yet he loves them this deeply because it was soaked in the gospel. And the point is that a love and a joy that stops at our own human level is like wading in that kiddie pool. You ran your two miles, and you just jump in ankle deep. And look at the world around you. 
we need to begin soaking our relationships. If we want to love deeply, we need to begin soaking our relationships in the gospel through proclamation, like Paul did with Lydia, through prayer, like Paul did with the servant girl, through using Jesus' name, through example, like Paul did with the soldier. And the other thing you notice about Paul in that section is the all-inclusive mindset. In my life, all the time, I'm thinking of who's ready for the gospel and who isn't. I don't know if you do that, too. And I think, oh, man, the way he cusses, the things that come out of his mouth, he's not ready. I'll give him a couple years. Or, man, he's got sin or his orientation. <laughs> I don't know if I can love on him because there's, that's the beauty that it's called being saved. Because to be saved, you have to be saved from something by something. Right? If you're drowning in the ocean, you have to be saved from drowning by a lifeguard. So I shouldn't be looking at people and say, hey, they're not ready. They're not ready. If they're in the muck, they're ready. That's why it's called being saved. And Paul saw this. That slave girl, he had no business talking unless he had a deep love for the gospel and knew of its power. Why would he talk to that slave girl? And how could he love her so intimately? The gospel. Lydia, nominal Christian. That should have been someone that Paul might have gotten really angry at. Like, you say you believe this stuff, you're not living it. You're rich, you're, you know, materialist. Like, he could have said a lot of stuff and ruined that relationship. He had an all-inclusive mindset. The guy who's beating him. It's all right, keep beating me. I'm going to sing hymns, and I'm going to love you anyway. All-inclusive. And as we turn our relationships into what they were meant to be, there's opportunities, too, to turn our hobbies back into passions because we can put the gospel at their core. Some of you are into, like, reading. Well, buy two copies of the book and share it with someone. You can read that. And I'm not even talking about Christian books. Just get them a book and read along with them, and you guys have a discussion, and you start forming a relationship with the mindset of this could infuse the gospel. Whatever your hobby is. I know this pastor who, he, he has a chaplain's pass, which means he gets in the Cardinal games for free. And when you have a chaplain's pass, you don't get a seat. You just go in, and then you have to, like, pick an open seat. And he goes, and he wears full Cubs gear. Oversized jersey, hat, everything. Full Cubs gear. Doesn't make him evil, just makes him dumb. But he, he walks in in full Cubs gear, and he just walks around the, the, the ring. And people yell at him and, and, you know, say stuff to him and try and pick fights with him. And whoever's the biggest loudmouth yelling at him, you know what he does? He goes and sits near him. And then he says, yeah, you know, I'm from Chicago. I love baseball, and I'm from Chicago. You guys got the good team. You know, I wish I was a Cardinal fan, but I can't sell out. And this guy will start talking back, and he'll realize he's not this wretched Cubs fan. He's just a guy who loves baseball from Chicago. And they'll start talking. And by about the fourth inning, he's sharing the gospel. He said, I'm a pastor. You know, I love Jesus, and I love baseball. Those are the things I love. All of a sudden, baseball has become a hobby. It's gone from a hobby to a passion because the gospel has become at its core, and he can love it more intimately with a purpose. How much better would life be? Talk about living life fully. Jesus came to bring life fully. Think of all of your hobbies became passions, things you could love deeply, love well with a purpose. I remember growing up, we had uh, swimming parties. It was great. It was like uh, the kids' version of like a Gatsby party. Like all the church ladies would bring their, their, their kids, and they'd all lay out, and they'd bring food. And I remember we'd play soccer in the front yard, and then there was a slip and slide in the backyard, and then we had this pool. So we'd like load our cheeks with brownies and jump off the diving board, and chocolate would stream out in the water. Like these were just like the epitome of childhood. Some of you might have been involved in these. It was just the best. And I remember thinking, I, I don't have a single unfond memory of those pool parties. And we'd all swim and get away from the heat. And I started thinking more about it this week. No one came to a yard party. And no one came to a come to Matt's house party. 
No one came to a snack party. They came because there is a pool. I think for all of us, the pool that God has given us to refresh others with, to swim deeply in ourselves, is love. That's the pool. And many of us have like this pool and we've designed it and God's given us this ever-flowing presence and all the grace to have a magnificent ocean of a thing. And we've got a little kiddie pool out there like that one I had at 4th of July. Yeah, come on in. So if I had a little baby pool, no one comes to that party. If I have an above-ground pool, I might get a few people there. But we had a big pool and it was deep and you could dive into it. So people came. How's your love today? Is it deep like Paul's? And the thing about swimming in the deep, the deep stuff, it's dangerous and it's costly. That means you rely on God. I don't think that's a bad thing. You start relying on his love and not your human love. And that's the picture of Paul. And it's refreshing and it's joyous. And I think it's the way love was meant to be. And so today we're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate not just this love letter to Paul wrote, but the ultimate love letter in that the God sealed a love letter to us and his son, Jesus Christ. And he hung that letter on the cross and, and, and hid our sins on it. And I love that it's a celebration because how do you celebrate that? That's a death and it's grisly and we caused it. Like, it's hard to celebrate, but we got to realize that three days later he, he walked around. And people were like, you're back? And he said, yeah, I'm back, but I'm going away again. But guess what? I'm preparing a place. And yeah, my dad was a little mad about what went on, but guess what? We paid it off, and you can come with me. Come on. You can come with me. Like, that's love. And we're going to celebrate that love. If you're here and you're in Christ today, we're going to take the bread and the cup that represents Jesus' blood and his body poured out for us, his life that he gave for us. And then we're also going to celebrate the ability for us to give life to other people in him by sacrificing, by loving, by diving deep. I hate the phrase falling in love because it feels like an accident. Let's be the type of Christ followers who dive into love. And not in a romantic, sensual sense. I'm talking about diving into love in all arenas, in our friendships, in our hobbies. And we would change some things, I think. I know my life would change if I'd lived that way. So as we take the bread and cup, let's, let's think of those things. And let's pray that the Spirit, who gives us the power and the energy to love, would, would just envelop us and that we could dive deep today. I'll pray and we'll take the bread and cup. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are love. And we thank you that in your son you redeemed love. And, and then you told us, hey, go love one another. And we don't get it right. And that's why we're talking about it today, because we don't get it right. But in you we have the power to at least try and to grow and to learn and to affect others and, and to bring people into a saving relationship through the power of your love. I mean... That's a high calling, Lord. That's a deep pool to swim in. But that's the pool Paul swam in. And that's the pool that we can swim in because we have the same spirit, Lord. And I pray that that's our hearts yearning. That like that dog swaying back and forth, hoping for a drop of water, that's the way we sway in love. We're so desperate for it. We long for relationships so much. We're willing to give so much to the people around us that they just say, man, they are desperate to love. And that's a beautiful thing. God, I pray that that's our call today, that we realize that your love is boundless and your love doesn't run out and we can tap into your love and that we can love deeply. We can love our spouses, our kids, our friends, strangers, our enemies. We can love, Lord, because you love first. 
Make that our prayer today as we close in worship and communion, Lord. Make it a celebration where we realize all you did for us and you did it out of love. We thank you, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.